I want to start by saying that I know I'm going to catch some flack for this episode. It's called prevention, and a lot of the doctors, even the ones who so kindly gave me their time in the other episodes, are going to say, we don't know how to prevent any of these diseases. But I disagree. If you tell me that immune diseases are caused by prenatal exposures, bad diet, and antibiotics, it stands to reason that if we limit prenatal exposures, eat a microbiome-friendly diet, and reduce unnecessary use of antibiotics, this should all help. It should prevent immune diseases, and it should prevent them from getting worse. I'm not claiming that any one thing is a magic fix, or that any one thing will guarantee a life free from immune disease. But as Dr. Chaez has said way back in episode three, it is rational to try. Given the incredible odds of developing an immune condition or having a child with one, how can we just wait another generation without trying? Dr. Chaesa mentioned that the key is to do what you can as long as it doesn't cause harm or drive you crazy. In this episode, we're going to hear about slight changes and informed choices that we can make in our lives that will have outsized impact on the health of our barriers and the state of our microbiomes. Most of the changes are basically free and effortless, and the ones that aren't are a lot less effort than taking your kids to dozens of doctors paying for a lifetime of medication, lubing your kid up twice a day, or drawing up teensy amounts of insulin three times a night. Where to begin? The sum of the things that we are exposed to is what Dr. Ben Wright from the gut episode calls the exposome. We are the cumulative sum of the interactions that occur between our genome, the microbiome that incorporates the virome, the fungome, the bacterium, and then also uh, the metabolome, uh, as well as the exposome, which incorporates environmental factors. And so it's all of those things that interact with one another that help us to understand how allergic disease uh, originates. So it's, you can't just look exclusively at the genetics, or you can't just look at the microbiome. We have to incorporate all those different uh, aspects in order to try and understand why allergic disease happens and how to treat it. So what's in the exposome? A lot of things that won't surprise you prenatal and ongoing chemical exposures, antibiotic use, again, prenatally and during childhood, air pollution is a big one, vaginal versus cesarean birth, breastfeeding versus formula feeding, and the biggie, diet. No one of these things is the sole cause of immune disease. They all interact in how our microbiome is set up, how our genes express themselves, how we mature and how our gut, skin, and lung barriers develop, and whether our bodies remain in a state of damage. What's challenging about immune diseases is that preventing them is not as simple as getting people to stop smoking. Families and parents need a lot of help with all of these triggers. So in her practice, Dr. Julia Getzelman starts trying to prevent diseases very early. You know, I'm an MD. I was trained at Yale and at Children's Hospital Oakland. But the way that I practice now is very different from what most physicians or pediatricians do. Ideally, mom pre-pregnancy would come and say, what can I do to prevent my child from developing severe food allergies and or autism, which has you know, exploded, or other developmental or medical chronic issues? I conceived of what I call greening the womb, which is a way of trying to optimize a, a woman's body prior to becoming pregnant in order to try to prevent what I think are some of the epigenetic 
factors that can contribute to these, these diagnoses that are exploding in our, in our kids. So part of the greening the womb process would be looking at a mother's gut health or a mother-to-be, you know, and, and taking into consideration, of course, her medical history and the family history. The gut is where we start because optimizing the health of the GI tract is a foundation for optimization of overall health. We're learning that things like volatile organic compounds that are produced by microbes in the gut can impact the body far and wide. In some cases, mothers-to-be have been exposed to excess heavy metal levels. And so, you know, we need to, in some cases, deal with that or plastics and other environmental toxins. There are ways of measuring these things and then helping to, to get them out of the body. So we try to sort of clean, clean things up and optimize these things as much as possible before conception so that the epigenetics, the environmental inputs are as, as good as they can be before she conceives. Preventing allergic disease before conception is great, but during pregnancy is also incredibly useful. To be honest, most of the, the women that have approached me over the years about a greening the womb type consultation have not done it preconception. And so there can still be an effort to optimize the gut, the microbes in the gut, the gut environment during pregnancy. You know, I think that potentially hugely helpful because the gut environment, the gut microbial environment also is a, is a reflection of the vaginal microbial environment and the baby gets coated, you know, on his or her way out by the microbes in, in the vaginal canal. And, and there's, I have a, a mentor who says, you know, there's a reason that babies are born mouth up towards the anus because they're, they're supposed to actually, you know, receive some of this microbial information, if you will, on their way into the world. Dr. Getzelman has a bunch of resources on how to green the womb. Things like eating well, anyone can do, but removing heavy metals and any testing should be done with the care of a naturopathic physician or a functional medicine practitioner. Starting with labor, Dr. Getzelman touched on how vaginal births pass good bacteria from mom to baby and seed their guts. C-section babies, on the other hand, receive bacteria from the surgical room and also get a hefty dose of antibiotics. If you can choose to have a vaginal birth over a C-section, that's a single choice that can have outsized influence. Please note, if is important in that sentence. Not every baby can be born safely vaginally. C-sections exist for a reason, so talk to your doctor. After a child is born, children who are breastfed seem to have fewer immune diseases than children who are formula-fed. But it's not so clear-cut, as Dr. Venter said when we spoke about her research. So I think, you know, in an ideal life, I would have been able to say, if your mom ate healthy, if you've been breastfed, if you have a diverse microbiome and if you don't start weaning or eating solids till four months and then start to eat all your allergens alongside the diverse diet, those are all the pointers that's going to tell me you are never going to have allergic diseases or other non-communicable diseases. But there is, we're just not at that point yet. And yet breastfeeding does clearly point to a reduction in risk. Again, not every baby or mom can safely breastfeed. Fed is best. But if you can choose to breastfeed, then there is an argument to do so. After baby starts eating food, diet continues to be one of the most critical factors in establishing and maintaining a healthy gut microbiome and reducing unnecessary exposures. 
I asked Dr. Getzelman how she coaches her parents of early eaters. Well, I mean, that's a huge question, right? I can focus on early flavor preferences that are developed in utero, for example. So we know that there's some impact on a baby's food preferences based on what was experienced while mom was pregnant because the amniotic fluid is flavored to some degree by what mom is eating during pregnancy. And then we further have an opportunity to create a beautiful canvas by how we feed a baby you know, in those first weeks and months of solid food introduction. If, you know, a parent is educated well about how to introduce solid foods, then you have, a, you have another opportunity to give, you know, give that baby complex flavors. I don't know where this idea came from that, you know, babies are supposed to eat rice cereal as a first food, which is highly processed and fortified with a really cheap iron source that causes constipation. Um, it has no flavor and no, you know, no meaningful texture. It's not food. I discourage even a lot of fruit introduction initially because, you know, fruit's easy to present to an early eater, right? Those are delicious, sweet things to introduce to your, you know, to your six or seven month old. But if that's all the baby knows for the first many weeks of experiencing solid food, and then you try to introduce broccoli, they're going to be like, what are you doing? That's not food. You've taught me that food is a squished up mango that has this, you know, sweetness. And so that's one tiny, but important example of trying to make a difference and, and that can be impactful for potentially a lifetime. More specifically, there is one particular diet intervention that has been directly proven to reduce the risk, at least of food allergies. It's called early allergen introduction, which makes it sound very technical, but what it means is once a baby is ready for solid foods, make sure that they are eating peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, milk, wheat, fish, etc. every week. In infant-safe forms, of course. In addition to the diet diversity benefits, which both Dr. Getzelman and Dr. Venter talked about, specific exposure to these foods seems to train the quality control system that they are safe. Dr. Brian Schroer, who taught us all about treatment options, put it really simply. Here's what it is. Please keep giving your kid peanut and don't let them wear it, let them eat it. So get the food into their mouth, but not onto their face, which I know at four months old and six months old can be hard, but it, they have not had anaphylaxis. Don't stop eating it. Keep eating it. Despite how some people may perceive vaccines as like injections of chemicals, they are not a cause of immune diseases. In the last year, a large meta-analysis, meaning a study of other studies, showed that there was no link between vaccinations and allergic disease. In fact, there was a slight reduction in eczema associated with vaccines, possibly because they prevent the infections that can trigger immune diseases. Well, what about delayed vaccinations? Well, I spoke to Dr. James Baker, head of immunology at the University of Michigan, and he said that it is probably important to continue to study this. The trade-off, however, was that in Asia, for example, many newborns are exposed to hepatitis B right away at birth, which can be deadly. So delaying the vaccine schedule there as we know it would be more harmful than beneficial. I thought I'd ask Dr. Getzelman about this and how she approaches vaccines with her patients because she works with a pretty unique set of parents. I tell patients that, and we tell patients that, you know, vaccines were one of the public health successes of the 20th century, hands down. 
However, the vaccine schedule is a lot driven by having a captive audience at certain wellness visits. And when you know, public health authorities have to make decisions at 20,000 feet for millions and millions of people, they are not going to nuance a vaccine schedule. In our practice, we see families who are going to show up when we tell them to show up and they don't have to take, you know, five buses to get to the office. It is a more privileged group of, of people Furthermore, the kids are, you know, home with either a mom or a mom and a nanny or a mom and a dad and a nanny and have very few potential exposures to preventable infectious disease. So if a parent wants to take a slower approach to what is the CDC-defined vaccine schedule, we talk about what are the risks and what are the benefits of the CDC schedule versus a slower schedule while still being able to protect the baby as much as possible and produce a vaccinated child. Dr. Getzelman here directly addresses two of the hardest parts of prevention. First, healthcare in the United States is not equal. In the last two years of COVID, we have seen this lack of health equity lead to some populations having far more cases, far worse disease, and a far higher death toll. Some patients get way more attention and thoughtful care than others. And some are born into safer environments than others. Again, as Dr. Beale said, our quality control systems weren't built for the current environment we are dealing with, especially the more polluted environments. Thankfully, a lot of great people are working to change that. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kira Namoff Shields of Healthy Babies Bright Futures. They are a nonprofit that is working to measurably reduce the largest sources of babies' exposures to toxic chemicals that harm brain development. Their mission is simple. They follow clear clinical evidence showing which chemicals affect brain development, and they try to prevent the effects by helping parents avoid those exposures in their children. While brain development and immune development are not totally the same, they are pretty related. The same chemicals that have a negative effect on the developing brain are unlikely to be good for immune development. Moreover, the mindset and practices that a parent would take on for preventing brain injury are very useful for parents wanting to prevent immune diseases. I started my conversation with Dr. Namoff Shields with the discussion of how bad is the problem today? You know, when the CDC did their biomonitoring study and they studied hundreds of chemicals in the bodies of women and other people in the population, they found levels of these chemicals in pretty much everybody. And so I think we don't want to feel overwhelmed by this, right? Because there are simple steps that you can take to reduce your risk. And I think that's really important to remember in this conversation. But I really feel the first um, point is education because I have three children myself and I was not aware of the typical sources in my home. It's pretty hard not to feel overwhelmed by data like that. But Healthy Babies Bright Futures has specific things parents can do. If I had to do it all over again, if I wanted to be educated, I would first talk about food, right? Food is one of the primary sources of exposure uh, for infants. And so our organization, Healthy Babies Bright Futures, has done several baby food studies. And in a nutshell, the key points are arsenic is a common contaminant in infant rice cereal. There are a lot of alternatives besides rice cereal, any multigrain cereal. So we really should be telling all parents to avoid infant rice cereal. Um, in fact, the states of Oregon, and Hawaii have removed infant rice cereal from their WIC approved food list. 
because of the arsenic contamination problem. As a follow-up to that, we also just tested, I think it was um, 196 samples of different baby foods. And this was a wide range of big jarred baby foods, organic, non-organic, a lot of different manufacturers and like a very high percentage. Um, I'm gonna say, I can't remember the number exactly, but over 80% of our samples came back with heavy metal contamination in baby foods. And so obviously that is very disconcerting. And now we're in conversations with the manufacturers to do some more testing. So we know that there's a problem, but we also want to say we know high contaminants are found in things like sweet potatoes and carrots. So just feed your baby a variety of baby foods. So it's not to feel, it's to feel empowered with the knowledge to make safer choices rather than to feel overwhelmed. Okay. One question I have about baby food is, yes, there are heavy metals found in baby food, but aren't they just in food period? How do we deal with this best? It's a great question. With things like rice, where the rice is grown really makes a big difference in terms of the arsenic that it uptakes from the soil. Arsenic was previously used as like a pesticide, just simply sprayed on rice. And because there was, you know, water, so much water with the rice, it percolated down into the soil. So Right now, the cleanest race that we know about are like organic California races, but we don't want to be saying people shouldn't eat rice. It's a matter of eating a variety of foods. And so have a little bit of rice, but maybe not exclusively rice. If you can try to buy a cleaner rice, but if you can't, that's okay. Just, you know, substitute that with barley and other grains throughout your day. And to your point, it's absolutely true that the foods we feed our babies are often the foods that we eat ourselves and plants naturally just bring up metals as part of their physiology. And so what the food industry is doing as part of talks that Healthy Babies Bright Futures has been involved with is, you know, looking at research methods for cleaning the soil, for doing better testing in case there's certain lots of say sweet potatoes that have a higher level of a contaminant as compared to others, you know, sourcing those cleaner foods for use in baby foods so that those that have the developing um, brain get the cleaner foods than the general population. Um, so there are workarounds, but you're absolutely right that these contaminants are naturally occurring. And so it's something we just need to understand better in order to address the issues. Beyond just eating, we have to think about a child's whole environment. The second thing you might think about is where else your baby spends time is you know on a surface where they may be sleeping. So you think about their mattress, Flame retardants, you've probably heard about that in the news. These are also neurodevelopmental chemicals. So we need to look for products that don't have flame retardants in them, like simple cotton pajamas or a wool mattress pad that is, hasn't been treated that's naturally flame retardant that can go on top of a mattress. Uh, furthermore, then sometimes when you go to the daycare centers, the mats that the children sleep on are also treated with flame retardants. And so that's another source of exposure. Um, and then uh, our group works with cities. And so cities spray pesticides. So we talk about how can we not manage the turf in cities without the use of chemicals. And that's been done very successfully with lush turf in places like Providence, Rhode Island, in Marblehead, Massachusetts, in Salt Lake City, Utah, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and so I really think it's just a matter of getting the education and getting over the hump of how people have traditionally done things to switch to these available and safer and healthier alternatives. These are all interventions that can be done after a baby is born. Before a child is born or even conceived, there are steps we can take. Dr. Getzelman called it greening the womb, and similarly, we can call it greening the house. Obviously, we think about lead and any like pesticide exposure outside. 
So simply having a doormat outside your door, wiping your shoes, taking your shoes off before you come into the house, right? Your baby, as they grow, are going to be spending a lot of time on the floor crawling. So if we can keep the floors clean, because you know how babies put their hands in their mouth or touching and tasting and sampling everything, we keep their surface clean by simple ways. We don't need products. Just wash the floor with water and vacuum and take your shoes off. That goes a long way. Along those same lines, think about your cleaning products cleaning products that have fragrances in them. Fragrances contain a neurotoxic chemical called a phthalate. So if you can use products that don't have artificial fragrances, maybe simple things like baking soda or vinegar and water, those are another easy way to reduce the toxic exposures at home. And we've talked about food. We've talked about where babies sleep. You can also look at infant toys. There have been a lot of advances actually in regulations with toys to keep phthalates out, but just being mindful of the plastics that you're using when you feed your baby is another opportunity to, you know, just create the healthiest environment uh, that you can. Uh, anything else, anything else like in terms of prep that parents could be thinking about, like testing the water for lead or getting a new filter or any other household upkeep? Yeah. I remember by the time we had our third kid, I was like, okay, I need to have my water, you know, order a lead and water testing kit. So that's a, that's a simple step. You could give that as a baby shower gift. Here's your lead and water testing kit. Cause that's something that we might not think about in Missoula, Montana. Uh, one of our grants was to put HEPA filters in daycare centers to reduce air pollution. So if you live in the West, like I do, you know, wildfires in the summer are becoming part of our reality so you can either keep your windows closed and use your air conditioning if you have that or consider an air filtration system, at least for the baby's room or where the baby's going to stay. But also, you know, just being aware and continuing to educate yourself and ask your pediatrician questions. Although we find that you know, that's another place that education is required. Med students are very busy, like learning and preparing to be doctors. So environmental health education, you know, is also often not as front and center as perhaps it could be. And so being not being afraid to go out and ask others if you're not getting the information that you need on your typical visits. Personally speaking, as we have rearranged our lives and environments to help our son heal, I have become so much more aware of the exposures that are everywhere. Why is there xanthan gum in these artichokes? Why are there chemicals in my body soap? There is lead on so many more surfaces than I ever contemplated and mold lurking in every corner. When I go to the pediatrician, armed with questions and thoughts, I feel like I always have to preface it with, I realize I sound like a wacko, but... I think that's okay, right? That's parenting. It's a journey and we don't know all the answers. So I can just say broadly, right? If your child is not meeting the developmental milestones as discussed, you might want to really, you would want to really drill down and understand why that's happening and consider also taking a look at the environment to make sure there's nothing there that could be impacting uh, your child's development. But, you know, as when it comes to your kid, don't be afraid to be a wacko and an advocate in order to, you know, really make sure that they have the healthiest environment possible to ensure the best start in, in their life. The best start in life. That's where this exploration started back when my son was in that emergency room, and fittingly, where it ends. Way back in the first episode, we heard from several families about the devastating toll that immune diseases take, especially on their tiny babies. It's not to say that people with immune diseases can't live happy, productive lives, but I do feel that they will always be held back by the level of work it takes to simply stay healthy. We learned how immune diseases of the lungs, skin, and gut follow similar patterns. Some of the diseases are collateral damage of the immune system fighting off what it thinks is a threat. Other immune diseases, autoimmune diseases, often start with the body trying to fight off something and then eventually, accidentally, turning on itself. 
The episode on the immune system tied things together, showing us that all immune diseases, no matter how they present, are the result of an immune system or quality control system unable to deal with the environment it has found itself in. And context matters. The type of damage to our barriers can create the conditions for an immune system to spin out of control. The episode on the microbiome showed us how the billions of bacteria living on us and in our gut can either help strengthen or weaken our barriers, creating the conditions for immune disease. And finally, we got some hope. The episode on treatments made clear that science is pushing rapidly forward. We have treatments to tame the immune system, treatments to calm the symptoms, and even emerging treatments for the microbiome. I'd like to think, however, that we can get to a place where all of these episodes are pointless. A place where we take back control of our choices, our diet, and our environments to prevent diseases from ever happening. As with lung cancer, why live in a world where millions of people get sick and then undergo painful, expensive chemotherapy? Why not just live in a world where no one smokes and very few people get lung cancer to begin with? Nothing in this episode on prevention should shock you. None of it is particularly hard to do. And it's all mostly about making the choice not to douse ourselves with harmful substances. I want to reiterate that nothing in here has been studied directly for immune disease prevention. It's me and some functional medicine practitioners recommending common sense. But that common sense and the decision to prioritize starting healthy and staying healthy is ultimately the only real path to fixing sick. Fixing Sick was written and produced by me, Mina Lele. Audio engineering by Chris Whitmore. The opinions I state in this podcast are my own. My guests only said what they said, and any mistakes are totally my own.